God, we come before you uh, needy for your word, needy for your truth, needy for your grace, uh, needy for your presence. And, and we trust uh, in, in the power of your word to, to provide those things because you speak through your word to us. And so, God, we, we want to be humble and contrite, trembling uh, under your word, seeking to, uh, seeking to be mastered by it, not to master it, seeking to be teachable, God, seeking to be uh, humble before you. We need your Spirit's help to, to do that. So, God, would you come and would you make our, our, our minds and our hearts and our ears attentive to your word and to your truth? As we come to a parable that we might be familiar with, God, would you, would you not let familiarity uh, lead us into a state of, of being unteachable, but, but would it actually then soften us to, to hear your truth again in a, in, a deeper, uh, in a deeper way? God, we pray above all that you would show us your son, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory. That we would leave here not impressed with a message, not impressed with music, not, not impressed with anything but yourself and what you've done through your son, Jesus. Pray you would do that for your namesake, you would do that for our good, and that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Luke uh, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Tom. So there's nobody uh, more respectable in the faith community in first century Judaism than Pharisees. There's nobody more despised in first century Jewish culture than tax collectors. One was a sign of good and godly, devout living. The other was a walking, talking, living, and breathing sign of the people's oppression brought into their daily lives. Tax collectors were uh, emissaries of Rome collecting tax, and what they would do is they would collect extra. They would get extra, they would extort, they would bend rules. They were disreputable people. And Jesus is using this parable to paint a contrast to tell us what it looks like to truly be approved of and accepted by God. Now, for this parable to sink in, we're not first century Jews, so some of this doesn't sink in, but I want you to imagine it like this. Imagine you have somebody telling you this parable today. It might be something like this. There's a man that's devout, that goes to church every Sunday, that prays multiple hours a day. He's built many homes for Habitat for Humanity. He volunteers at the homeless shelter. He mentors at the YMCA. He's a great person that anyone would look to and say, I admire and respect that man. 
Then you have another person who runs a, a payday loan office that charges more interest than really is necessary. When poor families come in, he could lower the interest a little bit, but he goes a little bit higher because he knows that they're needy and he knows that it's going to be extra profit off the top for him, so he does that. He uses shady contracts and maneuvers in order to add to his profit line and his account and, and his own income. His eyes light up when someone walks in the door and he realizes they're in need, which means high interest, which means benefit for me. And the feeling you get as you hear those two people contrasted or what the audience that Jesus is speaking to would feel. And then the hammer, that drops. The person we expect to be accepted is rejected. The person we expect to be rejected is accepted. Jesus is showing us that even when an insider looks like they've made it in, they may be turned away. And the outsiders that look like they're a lost cause are welcomed in. And Jesus, through this whole text, what he's doing is he's showing contrast. He's painting with the paintbrush of contrast. That's the whole thread or, or, or style that he's using in this parable. And really, his, his main point that he's making to the people that he's teaching and to his audience, there's Pharisees listening, there's all sorts of people listening. The main point he's making is, is really this, unless you're desperate for grace, you will be always on the brink of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is the fast track to being rejected by God. I want to set the scene for this. What do they do? Jesus is a master storyteller, painting with the paintbrush of contrast. What do we see ha happen first? Two people go up where? Where are they going? To the temple, right? They're going to the temple to do what? To pray, right? So, so notice what he's doing. It's two people go to the temple to pray, right? And then what is he going to say? Pharisee prays like this. Tax collector prays like this. Then they both leave. One is justified, the other is rejected. He's painting in contrast the whole way. Now, we've got to set this scene, right, because we don't really go to temples, do we? We come to church, and so go to the temple to pray. We don't really know what that looks like. We have a picture of what it looks like to go to church. We don't have a picture of what it looks like to go up to the temple to pray, as Jesus is explaining in, the, in, in 9 and 10. And so we need to set, set the picture. So, so the picture that, that we need to paint and understand is that they're in the court of the temple. Psalms are being sung. Um, uh, people are, are, are engaging. When, when it says to go up to the temple to pray, this is, this is both um, times of prayer where they would pray individually out loud, but also it's kind of a collective worship experience as well. And so they're doing that, and, and as they're engaging with that, there's, there's the priest who is, who is operating, uh, both coming out to the outer courts, but then going into the inners of the temple to, to orchestrate sacrifice and, and, do, and do the things that he needs to do. And in the interim, in the public, in the outer court, people would be engaging in prayers and praying out loud. It was very common. And Jesus is telling us and making this point in this pointed story to show us that we need to be desperate for grace, otherwise we'll be on the cliff of self-righteousness. So I want us to see the contrast. The first thing he's going to show us in contrast is the contrast of their prayer. 
Look at, the, look at the content of their prayer. One man thanks God that he's not like those people. I fast twice a week. I give tithes off of all of I get. This religious leader, respected among the people, thanks God for his own personal righteousness. He thanks God for his own personal goodness. Now remember, they're, play, they're praying what? To themselves or out, out loud, right? So, so what he's doing, and you've probably had this done to you, is he's giving a, a, a prayer sermon. He's thanking God, but he's also preaching to the people around him that he knows are going to overhear. He's probably thinking, you know, we can imagine, right? Like, well, it'll be good for them to hear how devout I am because maybe this will help them. He's praying out loud. People are hearing. There's most likely people who are like, wow, this dude really like fast like twice a week? The requirement to fast is not twice a week. The requirement to fast would be two days after each of their three major feasts, which means 12 days a year. But this guy announces to everyone and to God, no, I fast two days every week. People around him are like, this guy is the real deal. Like, this guy really loves God. I can't fast for one meal. But this guy is fasting twice a week, above and beyond what's required talks about his tithes. He gives tithes off of everything that he gets, not just what's required, everything he's cutting off the top to give back again. And people say, this man is devout. This man has really loved God. No wonder he's a leader in the community. He loves God in a way that I don't. But he says this, God, thank you that I'm not like the extortioners, the adulterers, the unjust or even like this tax collector. Notice what he's doing. He's thanking God for his own personal goodness that makes him believe that he's better than others. Don't don't you see what Jesus is showing us? He's showing us how easy it is to mix a love for God that thanks God with the self-righteousness that thanks God for the fact that we're not like those people over there. He's showing us how quickly these things mix and get polluted. Jesus is also warning us and showing us that there's a type of goodness that is actually not good, and there's a type of righteousness that's actually not right. And the warning that Jesus is giving us is plain inside in verse 9. He's telling this parable, Luke teaches us, for, for really two reasons. To show that people who trusted in themselves would not be accepted by God. And to show that if you trust in yourself, you're self-righteous in that way, it's going to lead you to have what towards others? Verse 9, contempt. Jesus is giving us a major warning here. And here's the warning about self-righteousness that we see in this parable. Anything that defines you through what you do is a journey to self-righteousness. See, the the essence of self-righteousness is because I do blank and I don't do blank, I am righteous. Because I don't do what they do, and I do what the good people do, however you define that, I am better than them and I am righteous. It's the essence of self-righteousness. Now, we've all seen the religious version of this, right? You don't have to be around uh, churches long to to catch wind of the religious version of Phariseeism or self-righteousness. It could be this. It could be, thank you, God, that my life is clean and pure. Thank you, God, that I haven't been a promiscuous person. Thank you, God, that I don't do that type of sin. 
Thank you, God, that I have great theology and not bad theology like those people. We can turn things that are good and fine and God-honoring into fuel for our self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is teaching. There's a goodness that's not good. There's a righteousness that's not right because we then begin to use it as a prop to hold ourselves up against others and to earn our approval before God. But, but here's the thing, you know this too by experience, that you don't need to be a Christian to be self-righteous. It's just fundamental to human nature. Trusting in a goodness that's not good is a part of our human nature. I was in Seattle this weekend, um, actually flew back this morning, so you know, don't judge me harshly on, on, the, speech, on the sermon delivered today. Um, the Word of God is powerful and able, um, which it is, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, and 15. Um, that whole stretch, it's all about scripture, it's power. I had to get you guys laughing, keep you guys awake. Um, I know 9.30 is a new time for us, right? I got to keep you guys awake. Um, but I was in Seattle this weekend, and so uh, with a friend, we got a meal, um, and then we go to, you know, at the end of your meal, what do you do? You throw your stuff away, right? Well, in Seattle, there's about seven different canisters for you to put your things in. So I was just like, oh, oh no. So first, is anybody watching? Because if I get this wrong, right, I don't, I don't want to be judged, right? But there's the compost, there's the trash. They all look like the trash, right? But one is the compost, one is the trash, one is the recycle, and one, you know, there's like six things. There's like 50 photos on each one and a bunch of words. So it's just very strange and confusing. <laughs> and, and so my friend, my friend puts this like cup in the wrong one. And we, we're like, dude, that's not where it goes. And we're like, you're going to get arrested. Like you're in Seattle, you didn't recycle, you were going to get arrested. Um, and it was just this moment where, where we, just, uh, we just, we laughed and then we, we fixed it. And obviously, as, as Christians, of all people who want to steward the earth, it should be the people who believe God made it, right? Uh, and so that's not what I'm knocking. But it's funny because that experience reminded me that we've all encountered that friend or maybe even been that person that when they find out you don't compost or when they find out that, you, oh, you don't recycle all the time, like there's just this air, right, of self-righteousness this air of inflation, and then you get this kind of feeling of deflation. You're like, well, I try to, right? Or you have to like prove yourself. And it's just, a, it's just a comedic glimpse into what Jesus is showing us here is that that type of stuff is good, but we can take something good and turn it into fuel for self-righteousness. It can become a goodness that is no longer good, a righteousness that is no longer right, because we're using it to justify ourselves, we're using it as fuel to gain acceptance, right? So, so there is a way in which you can be a, a religious or Christian Pharisee, but you can also be a non-religious Pharisee, right? The non-religious Pharisees, their prayer is like this. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those people who aren't sophisticated. Thank you, God, that I'm not narrow-minded like those people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the people who don't volunteer. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the people who don't really care about our community and volunteer and recycle and come, right? There's all sorts of ways we can take this prayer of self-righteousness and fill in the blanks ourselves. This speaks and warns all of us. And it is the self-righteousness in a religious Pharisee or in a irreligious Pharisee that God equally rejects, says it's pride. So Jesus' question, if he's here, one of his questions to us from this parable would be this, what is your Pharisee's prayer? What do you put in the blank? Thank you that I'm not like
what do you do that you subtly, what do you do that subtly makes you think that you are better than others? Where are the seeds of Phariseeism planted in your mind? Here's the tricky thing. Are you, and if none of these hit you, right, are you a Pharisee about, being, or about not being a Pharisee? Right? You can say, oh, God, thank you that I'm not like those Pharisees. I'm such a gospel person. I'm so defined by your grace. I'm so not self-righteous. Thank you, God, right? You see how hard this is to escape? Right? This implicates all of us. If the Pharisee is the poster child of self-righteousness, because I do blank and I don't do blank, I am therefore righteous, the tax collector is the polar opposite. This is the contrast Jesus paints. Look at where they stand. The Pharisee stands by himself, thinking these people are not worthy to be near me. The tax collector stands in the back, not feeling worthy to even approach God. The Pharisee prays in pride, sprinkled with a little bit of God on top. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. Here's my acts of goodness. The tax collector prays in brokenness, drenched in agony. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee's prayer would impress all those in earshot. Wow, look at his devotion. The tax collector's prayer would disgust all those in earshot. Listen to that disgusting crying and wailing in the back. The foundation of the Pharisee's prayer is a mix of God and his personal goodness. I'm not like them. The foundation of the tax collector's prayer is simply the mercy of God alone. Jesus wants us to understand and embrace something here that runs counter to the way people work. He wants us to understand this, that God is not looking for our goodness to make us right with him in his eyes. God is not looking for our morality to make us right with him in his eyes. God is not looking for your activity to make you right before him in his eyes. He's looking for you to do something else. He's looking for you to come to the end of yourself, to the brink of the cliff where you realize there is nothing that you can do or contribute to your standing before God. He wants you to drop the facade of self-righteousness, which is a relief, and he wants you to embrace the essence of the tax collector's prayer, that God, my acceptance before you is based on nothing that I have ever done, good or bad, but solely on your mercy. That's where God is trying to take each of us. And along that path, he will expose us. Those moments we realize, wow, I am a lot worse than I thought I was. Along that path, he will challenge us. Along that path, he will use texts like this to strip us of trusting in our goodness so that we get to the point where we say, I understand these people around me see me in this light, but I know deep down I am simply dependent on the mercy of God alone. Not my activities, not my goodness, but his grace. All right, this is, and this is the very essence of Christianity. Some of us mistake Christianity as a moral cleanup project. It's not. It's a, it's a project restoring sinners to God. What's so critical about the tax collector's prayer is the tax collector's prayer is really the essence of what it means to become a Christian. 
See, a Christian is a person who says, I am better than no one. I'm actually the worst person that I know. Christian says, I'm the worst sinner that I know. I know my thoughts. I know my motives. I know that I do good things for wrong reasons. I know I do bad things for bad reasons, right? I know who I am. I know my motivations. I know my wiring. I know my history. I know things about me that nobody else knows. I'm the worst person that I know. That's what a Christian freely admits. Why else would we trust in a man who is crucified to a tree? If we were so good, why would that be necessary? If we were so good, why would God have to send his son to die for us? The Christian readily admits, I am the worst sinner I've ever met. But at the same time, I'm fully loved by God because it's not dependent on my activity, but upon his grace to me in Jesus. So the tax collector's prayer is the most natural thing to roll off the lips of a Christian. And don't you see this? Look at, look at verse 9. Jesus describes the Pharisee as trusting in his own his righteousness, but then doing what? Treating others with contempt. These go together like peas in a pod. Here's why. If your source of righteousness is you, you will always feel superior to others because your goodness is from you. And if they're not good, clearly they don't have what you have, and so they're chumps and you're not, right? Do you, do you see how, this, how clearly this works? If your source of righteousness is you, you will be the most arrogant person. But if you understand that you're simply a product of God's grace, you'll be humble before all. This is why arrogant Christians are such an insult to the gospel, because it runs contrary to the very essence of Christianity. Right? Imagine, imagine it like this. You have two students... Or you have, a, you have a student who, who cannot pass a test, and they get, uh, they get help from the teacher. The teacher's like, hey, I'm going to help you. I'm really going to do everything for you, and it's not cheating because I talked with the principal, whatever. We need to right, excuse cheating from, from the framework for this illustration, right? But, but they get help from the teacher, and they get help, and, and they finally they get the A that they need. And then imagine them going around the classroom saying, I got an A. I'm so much smarter than all of you. I'm so much better than all of you. And the teacher's in the back like, you needed my help every step of the way. How can you boast? That's the essence of self-righteousness. One way to understand if you, you really understand the gospel in, this, in a tax collector sinner type of way, in this deep heart level, right, is to, to think of this question. What does God think of you right now? What does God think of you right now? And if it takes you more than half a second to say he's fully pleased with me, not because of my goodness, but because of Jesus' grace, if it takes you more than half a second to get there, then, then, then you have room for gospel growth in your heart. If your immediate thought is, well, what I've been struggling with lately, or man, I haven't been reading my Bible, or man, I'm not excited, right? If, you, if those are the first things you go to, you, you, need to, you don't grasp the gospel in, in its fullness, that on your worst days, you're as justified as you are on your best days because it's dependent on the work of Jesus, not on your own work and righteousness. You have to grasp this like the tax collector. Another way that you can test this out, an old uh, Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, would ask people this. He would, he would ask people this to see if they really understood the gospel, people who were, who were um, coming and hearing the gospel and, and engaging. Uh, he would ask them, well, well are, you, are, you, are you ready to call yourself a Christian yet? 
he would ask people who who knew who had been, man, I love Jesus is just rocking my world, and uh, you know, and 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 they were just really like getting into things, and sometimes people would say, I'm trying, I'm trying. It's like, are you a Christian? I'm trying, and he would, that would be immediate flags. Like, no, you you don't get it. You don't have to try. You don't have to do anything. You just trust in him. It's it's all done. Or they would say, I, I, man, this week I haven't really lived like Jesus, so, so I can't really say that. He's like, no, no, you don't, you don't understand. It's grace through faith. It's not trying. But we're quick to fall into the line of our activity, our self-righteousness. We're quick to fall into the line of the Pharisee. The next thing Jesus wants to contrast in this is the posture. It's a posture, right? Notice, notice the posture, right? What we're seeing here in, in the text is that what's displayed in the tax collector's body is an extension of what's happening in his heart. Right? This is why the Bible actually talks about when you when singing, raise hands. You know, not that you have to all the time, but it talks about what we do with our body is an extension of our heart, right? You ever seen somebody at a wedding just like this? It was that one last night, right? Nobody was like this at the wedding. You know what they were like? Eh, like they're just, <laughs> right? Because they're having a great time. Because it's, it's a happy time, right? And so, so our bodies, right, and, then, and this is an encouragement, this isn't a rebuke to you, your bodies, like when we were singing, like engage with your, man, engage with your bodies. Let your bodies be an extension of what's happening in your mind and your heart, right? And that's what we actually see here with the Pharisee and the tax collector, because what is happening with the tax collector? He's off in the back beating his chest, beating his chest and wailing out to God. Have you ever been around somebody or in a room in a setting where one person is doing the uncontrollable sob? and everybody else is normal. Isn't that, isn't that uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable for everybody else because they don't have that level of agony or brokenness that that person's going through. So you almost want them to get out of the room, right? Because you're like, this is really killing the mood that we've got going on here. That's what's happening here in the temple. People have got to be looking back like, like, a, like a baby crying on an airplane, like, get this person out of here. Like, this is not respectable behavior in the temple. You're beating your chest. The Pharisee, on the other hand, is dignified. Standing. This will be the prayer posture, right? The accepted posture for prayer in the temple was to look down, keep one's arm crossed over the chest like a servant before a master. But the tax collector is so broken over his sins, he beats his chest and is crying. This is funeral behavior. This is what a mother would do at a funeral. The only other time we see beating of the chest recorded in Scripture is later in Luke's gospel when people are seeing the crucifixion of Jesus. So the tax collector is broken. And here's what Jesus is showing us. You can't be self-righteous if you're broken over your sin. He's showing us that a true encounter with God leaves us humbled, not haughty. You can't be a person who looks down on others if you are the biggest sinner that you know. If you understand, I'm, a, I'm, I'm like the tax collector. I'm broken over my sin. I think Jesus' question for us from this text would be, when is the last time that we really felt desperate for grace? When was the last time we really understood, like the tax collector, man, my righteousness looks good to others, but before God, I'm desperate for grace. It's his mercy alone that makes me approve before him. The other... Uh, the, or, or, or the way that this happens, the way that we get desperate for grace, the way that this occurs, right? It, it occurs by what you, by what you use uh, as your measure of comparison. So if you heard this story told often uh, about musicians who move to, uh, to a large city, uh, often hear this with New York City, 
that a, that a skilled musician, right, goes to, goes to New York, they want to kind of chase their dream. And then they get to New York and they realize, wow, I came from a town of, you know, a couple hundred thousand or maybe a million, but now I'm in a place where, like, you got like 10 million in a block. And so I thought I was a good musician. But now in the city, I thought I was a headliner. I'm just like the person that has to pay to play at the open mic. That, that, my, that, that my standard of comparison is completely different. And it's this adjustment for these people to recognize that, man, I was a talented big deal here, but here I'm a small fish in a big pond. And the next thing that Jesus shows us to contrast in this parable is our standard, our measure of comparison. And this is how you become desperate for grace is when your measure of comparison begins to align with God's. See, both prayers mention God, but they use a different measuring instrument. In the Pharisee's prayer, he's using a measuring instrument to gauge his righteousness. He's using a ruler to see how long, how, uh, how valuable his righteousness is. And, and what's his measurement? Who does he mention in his prayer? Adulterers, extortioners, unjust tax collectors. The Pharisee is using the measurement of other people to test his righteousness. And when he measures himself against others, he recognizes, I am much more righteous than these people. I'm much more devout than these people. I love God much more than these people. He's measuring based on others. He's comparing based on others. But the tax collector, on the other hand, Jesus shows, is going to measure with a different category. He measures himself not against others. He's not concerned with others. He's in the back, far off, by himself. He measures himself not by other people and what they're doing or what their standard is. He measures himself by the one he's accountable to. He measures himself up against God and his holiness and his perfection. Which is why his prayer is so different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees' prayer is almost not concerned with God at all. It's concerned with the adulterer, the unjust, the extortioner. That's what's on the Pharisees' radar. The tax collector could care less about any of those other people. He says, God, before you have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. He's measuring himself against the one that matters. And here's where this comes into play for us, is if we spend most of our time weighing ourselves against other people, weighing ourselves or what they think of us, weighing ourselves up against their activity, we will never come to the point where we see our desperate need for grace. We will always have a sense of self-inflated righteousness from ourselves. And the reason why is when you measure yourself against other people, you'll always find somebody that you're more righteous than. That doesn't take that much work, right? To find somebody that you can say, well, God, thank you. I'm not like that person. But if we measure ourselves up against God's standard and God's righteousness, we will see that we're found lacking. And by being found lacking, we will be on the edge of receiving amazing grace, being renewed in that and getting a deeper sense of God's mercy and love to us. And here's, here's why this is so critical. It's critical for our acceptance before God because God rejects those who trust in their self-righteousness. He accepts those who say, God, I have nothing. I trust in your mercy in Jesus alone. This is also critical, again, back to verse 9, because what we think about our own righteousness and where it comes from profoundly impacts every relationship that we have. If your standard for comparison 
for your life and God's acceptance as other people, you will walk in self-righteousness. But if you believe that your approval before God is by grace and grace alone, you will be humble towards others. I want you to imagine this this way. Imagine every person in this room is transformed either into the Pharisee or the tax collector. And we comprise this church together. What would this church be like if this was comprised of Pharisees? It would be a church of performance. It would be a church of pretending. It would be a church of comparing. It would be a church of one-upsmanship. It would be a church that, that people who are considering Jesus would never want to come to because they would come in and they would immediately become our rulers of comparison. God, thank you. I'm not like this person. I do this and they don't do this. They just got you. Like, it would be horrible. And sadly, in churches, not that everybody is that, but if you get enough of that in a church, it just, it just poisons the whole thing. The doctrine can be great, but the culture is sour. Because even though grace is preached, when you get close to people, you realize, oh man, I have to be good here or else they won't have me. On the other hand, imagine you have a church that's full of tax collectors, full of people who beat their chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What type of church do you have then? What type of church culture and environment will you have then? You have an awesome one. You have one where when people confess their sin to you, you don't get shocked. You say, yeah, I have my stuff too. But guess what Jesus has done? You have a church where people who don't know anything about Jesus will come and they'll start to say, oh, these people are kind of like me. They're different, but they're like me. And they're giving me safety and time to figure out what I think about this Jesus person. You have a church where people who've heard the gospel preached their whole lives start to actually experience it and how people relate to them. You have a church where people for the first time feel safe to call someone and say, hey, I messed up. Would you pray for me? You have a church where people have safety and time to grow in their relationship with Jesus because we realize we're not accepted by God by how well we're doing. We're accepted by the righteousness of Jesus. So if we're a work in progress right now, it's okay. We're a work in progress. We're accepted based on what Christ has done, not our progress. It's a completely different church culture. And this is, right, you can already guess which one we're trying to build here, right? We're trying to build the tax collector gospel culture church here. By God's grace, we see, see signs of it that's, that's really encouraging, right? So, so here, I want to I point this out because I think Jesus is making this point in nine, but here's how that culture, that gospel culture gets built. And I want you to think of it as your actions are bricks that lay a foundation for this culture. Here are a couple, a couple things that you can take on or think about this. Um, one is this. Um, in a gospel culture church where we're freed from self-righteousness, we trust in Jesus' mercy alone, we never rebuke somebody's repentance. Does that make sense? We don't rebuke repentance. What I mean by that is when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I messed up, we don't rebuke them. We don't rebuke repentance. So when someone comes and says, man, I messed up, I dropped the ball, we comfort them with the gospel. 
We say, you have God's grace for that sin. And you also have his power to grow. And we walk with him through that. Somebody who's already, someone who's broken over their sin does not need to be rebuked. Right? So we don't rebuke repentance. I remember hearing a story from my friend, um, the guy come to him and say, man, um, like he said, he said, last night I looked at pornography. He said, I, I, I battled against it for two hours. And then I, just, I just caved in. And this guy's in tears. He's just, he's just weeping and broken. And my friend looks at him and says, I'm so proud of you. That was the Holy Spirit at work in your life. That you fought against temptation for two hours. And do you know that Jesus died for that sin as well? You know how that guy left the room? He left full of the gospel of grace. So we don't rebuke repentance. Other thing we do is we want to give people the good news of the gospel before we give them good advice. Here's, here's an example. If I tell you, if, you're one of, if, I, if you talk to me about preaching or something that I'm doing, and I tell you, oh, I feel so bad, like I'm just not doing a good job, and I'm not doing a good this, and, and you start to give me good advice, or you start to say, oh, no, actually, Claude, you're a great preacher. Like, why are you worried? Like, well, you're great. You're good at this, right? You're actually not really helping me that much. You know why? Because you're feeding into an insecurity that I have. What I need to be reminded of is, hey, man, whether you're a good preacher or not, you're accepted by Jesus. Remember that. And by the way, you're a good preacher, right? I, I need to, right, but what, do I, what would I need first? What would I need first, though? Man, I need, I need the gospel first. I need the gospel before, before the practical because that's a soul need for me, right? So we want to give people the good news along with good advice. I also want to ask people these types of questions. What truth of the gospel do you need to remember right now in your life? What truth of the gospel do you need to remember right now in your life? These are the type of things that are bricks by bricks upon bricks that lay a foundation of a gospel culture in a church where we look more like the tax collector and less like the Pharisee. The last thing that Jesus shows us by contrast is how they're seen by God. The religious insider is rejected. The sinful outsider is accepted. It's not only accepted, he's seen as perfect. Jesus says in 14, he went away justified. This is a legal term. Gavel drops and says, no, this person is fully righteous in my sight. This is a scandal. The man who on the outside has done many righteous things is turned away. The one who has done many sinful things is brought near. This is a scandal. The man who stole from the poor, didn't render justice, took advantage of his privilege, oppressed people, justified before God while a devout person is rejected. Why? One was desperate for grace and received it. The other trusted in their own goodness. When you trust in your own goodness, you know what you're doing? You're slamming the door on God's grace. You're slamming the door. You can't be too bad for Jesus, but you can be too good for him. That's what Jesus is showing us here. The tax collector's prayer, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's almost better read this, make an atonement for me. And this is what the tax collector is seeing and understanding as he's at the temple, as he's seeing sacrifices, he's understanding these things. He's seeing that, that God, I need an atonement for my wrongs. I need mercy for my sins. It's only dependent on you, not on anything that I do. And the reason he's justified is because the prayer that the tax collector prayed is answered by God through Jesus. Tax collector prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What, it, what would Jesus later come to do? 
who would later come to be nailed to a tree in the place of all who trust in him for their salvation and restoration to God. Jesus Christ is the answer to the tax collector's prayer. God did have mercy. God does have mercy if we would humble ourselves and say, God, give me the grace that's in Jesus Christ, your son. Your whole life, you have been taught you are what you achieve. You are what you do. But God wants to bring us to the end of ourselves to see that there is a goodness that is not good, a righteousness that is not right, and that our activity doesn't merit acceptance before him. The grace of Jesus is our hope and foundation. And when we see that we're products of grace, we begin to treat others in a gracious way. We begin a culture of a church where the gospel is thick and real in the air, and Jesus continues to transform our lives and the lives of others. But until we're desperate for this grace, we will always walk on the brink of self-righteousness. But God wants to take us to the end of ourselves so we receive grace upon grace in Christ. I want us to take a moment as we do uh, each week to respond in in silent prayer. Um, In this time, just whatever is sticking out to you from God's word, actually ask him. Say, Say, God, what do you have for me from your word? You ask him, God, where, where, where am I like a Pharisee? You ask, God, make me desperate for your grace. However you feel God leading you to respond in prayer, take a moment to do that silently. I'll pray for us aloud, and then we'll continue to worship Jesus together. God, we um, come before you, Lord, and recognize that um, we too often cling to to our activity as the as our as our hope of acceptance before you that we we admit that we slip into that thinking even as we try to fight against it. Thank you that you're patient with us and that you're gracious with us. We ask for your help that you would uh, that you would bring us to the end of ourselves continually that we would see that we're we're constantly in need of your grace and that you provide it. That in Christ there is grace upon grace for us. That we stand by faith in his righteousness and, and not our own. And, and that changes how we relate to one another. Oh God, would you help us to be a, a gospel people shaped by the doctrine of the gospel, but also uh, contributing to a culture of the gospel. Lord, where our lives are shaped and, uh, and conformed to, to the good news of your son. Lord, would you show us where we're trusting in our goodness? And would you lead us to the righteousness that is ours in Christ by faith, not through what we're achieving, what we're doing, or how devout we've been. So give us freedom from that performance that we would rest in grace, and then out of grace, we would live transformed lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.